The Planet Football Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. Enter promo code PLANET at FanDuel.com for a bonus match of up to $200. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket, and get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app and enter our code PLANET for $20 off your first purchase. Welcome to this week's Sports Illustrated Planet Football Podcast. Avi Creditor is on assignment this week, so you've got me as your host. I'm Grant Wall. We've also got Brian Strauss on very few hours of sleep after covering the U.S. Open Cup final. Welcome, Brian. Zombie Brian Strauss. <laughs> and as usual, we've got our crack producer, Alex Abnos. Hey, how's it going, guys? Alex uh, had moving day yesterday, but he also got to see his hometown Kansas City team win the U.S. Open Cup final as... They're my hometown, too. Kansas City sports. Yeah, all the sports. <laughs> well, the Chiefs within the last week, they're not so good. But all the other sports are, are doing okay. <laughs> Lots to talk about this week. Later in the show, from Kansas City's win over Philadelphia in the 102nd annual Open Cup final, to leave you Bird's interview of Seattle rain coach Laura Harvey, to our takes on... Why England teams aren't doing well in the Champions League, the big USA-Mexico game coming up next week, to Olympic qualifying, which starts this week on the men's side. But first, we have an interview I really enjoyed doing with Arsenal goalkeeper Petr Cech. His achievements speak for themselves, and he's a really intelligent guy about the sport. Keep in mind, this interview was done Sunday, the day after Arsenal's 5-2 win over Leicester City. But before the Gunners, 3-2 home loss to Olympiacos and Champions League, in which Czech probably should have been in goal instead of David Ospina. Without further ado, Petr Cech. We're lucky today to have one of the world's best goalkeepers of the past 20 years joining us, Petr Cech of Arsenal in the Czech Republic. Thanks so much for joining me, Petr. No, thank you for calling me. Uh, I want to talk about a few things today, if possible, from how you approach goalkeeping to looking at your career. But let's start with the news. Uh, Leicester City 2, Arsenal 5 on Saturday. Alexis Sanchez hat trick. Arsenal came back from an early deficit. You came up big at times in this game. What are the most important things that you saw in this game? The most important, obviously, was to, uh, to win a game. And as well to uh, to kind of find our way during the during the first half because uh, you know Leicester came out of the blocks really well and and uh, you could see you now they they had been unbeaten so far this uh, this season and they had a lot of confidence in them so you know playing at home against Arsenal they had nothing to lose and you could. Um, you know, you could see that uh, you know they they played uh, with freedom and they created some uh, opportunities at the start, and I think that in that way we did really well to uh, you know to find the equalizer in the difficult moment. And I, I thought it was one of the key moments of the game where you know when we when we equalized, uh, we suddenly came back to the game and and started having more control and and we were efficient, which uh, was the second key because we created chances and this time we. We could have scored more goals, but we, you know, we scored, we scored in the right time, and and it gave us the the platform to build them. This is your first year at Arsenal. There was talk heading into the season that Arsenal had a real chance to win its first Premier League title in 12 years. You know what it takes to win the title. Does this Arsenal team have what it takes? 
How many does? We have uh, we have players with experience. We have players with uh, you know with the motivation to you know to win uh, trophies and and we have young players who are very hungry. So I think that uh, you know that this team has a, a really good uh, balance and I believe um, as well as the quality and and if we if we keep progressing in our game that uh, we have a we have a good chance to, to challenge for the title. We're back in a Champions League week this week. Uh, for Arsenal's first Champions League game, David Ospina started in goal for Arsenal. What have you been told about your role in Champions League games, and are you expecting to play in Champions League at some point this season? Well, we, I think we, as a club, we are lucky that, you know, we have uh, goalkeepers the manager trusts, and then that's why, you know, he could, uh, you know, he, he chooses for uh, games uh, as um, as the, as the season goes, and and uh, David uh, played the first game, but uh, we are we are not um, we are not told who will play what competition. I think the manager chooses how sport the the way he needs. So in the in the first game, David uh, came to play, and and I think it's, uh, it shows that how much the team has the confidence in him, and and as well if you see him training every day and preparing for. Um, for every day, uh, then I think he, he deserves to have games, and and I think he this is what the, the manager uh, you know appreciated from him, and and um, so let's see what will what will happen in the next games. But uh, as I said, we are both preparing for each game, and it's up to the manager who chooses uh, to play the game. You spent 11 seasons at Chelsea. Uh, you became a huge part of that club's success over the years. Like a lot of players, you must have a routine that you get used to when you're at a club for that long. In what ways does Arsenal do things in a similar way on a day-to-day basis as you experienced at Chelsea? In what ways is Arsenal different? Well, I think, you know, we are talking about two top clubs, and, and in the top clubs, you know, the preparation uh, and and the motivation and the desire to, you know, to prepare to win trophies is the same. So I don't see... There is not... Um, much difference between the organization of both clubs. Uh, obviously, the, the managers are different uh, mentality and slightly different philosophy of the football. So that's why, you know, the certain, certain uh, things in the football way are, are different. But uh, I have to say that, um, you know, there is not a big difference between, uh, between Arsenal and Chelsea in terms of the organization and the preparation the players, so I think it helped me to, to set up quickly as well. You mentioned football philosophy differences. So many people want to talk about personality differences between Wenger and Mourinho, but I'm more interested in football philosophy differences. How has the football philosophy changed for you this year? Well, I think the, in the modern game, as a goalkeeper, you need to be, you need to know for what team you're playing, and I think this is where they put a lot of talk about, you know, if some people, if some goalkeepers are playing more in the goal, some people higher up, and and um, but I think it all depends. Uh, in the in the modern game, as a goalkeeper, you have to adapt to the team, the way the team plays. So if your defense is playing really high. Then obviously you need to have the advanced position that you can sweep. If if your if your team is more about counter attacking and sitting a little bit deep, obviously then is not is not the 
the way to say that the goalkeeper is not as active, but it, it just plays with the, the way the team plays. So I think the, there is a there is a difference, obviously, between between the way Chelsea plays and, and Arsenal plays. So we are more active with the ball. We you know we we press higher and there is more space. So I have to have to be higher to you know to to compensate the the high line. But um, this happens. You have to be able to to adapt and to have the right position all the time. Your first Premier League game with Arsenal didn't go the way you had hoped, yet you have been terrific this season in goal after that game. I'm always amazed at professional athletes. I can never be one because I think I, I would crumble if I made a mistake just once. Uh, what, as a professional athlete, what are the keys to putting mistakes behind you and moving forward? I think the key is the preparation because, uh, you know, I believe that when you prepare, then and uh, you know the the things are not going well you know you couldn't have done anything more so you just continue to you know to work and and you believe in what you're doing and i think this is this is where you know you need to be strong in your mind to believe that the the, the thing you are doing is is the right thing and uh, you know i had a brilliant preseason and uh, you know we won the the community shield game Against Chelsea, we were ready for the first game, and obviously the first game went wrong. But it was it was not you know it could it could have been coincidence just the way that was a it was a bad day, and and I knew that I was ready to play the game, and and I made two mistakes which which obviously I was not happy about. But um, the keys to continue, I believe the the way I prepared uh, it brought me all the success I had, and so I I put my head down. The other day I went. And train and, and prepare the next game, and since then, obviously, the, the things are looking different ways. So, I think the, the preparation and the work, uh, you know, you continue to do what you do best. Uh, this the uh, this the only thing to you know to overcome a, a period where you made a mistake. I'd like to ask some questions about goalkeeping, if possible. How would you describe the way you hope to play the position of goalkeeper when you're at your best? It feels like you have a fraction more time all the time because uh, you don't think too much about am I in the right position? You just automatically go with your feeling and with the, and the game goes. And I think this is the, this is always the the aim for everybody. You wanna you wanna feel obviously physically and uh, prepared, but once you get into the zone where you feel that you know you are ready, you are comfortable, you have the mind freedom and everything is going well, this is where you feel like things are happening for you even without thinking too much. And, and uh, I think the, the, the makes, that makes the big difference because the decision-making in a goal, it's down to a fraction of the second. And, and uh, you can, you know, if you, if you are more comfortable, more relaxed, then your decision-making obviously uh, becomes easier to, uh, let's say, to execute in the right way and then you you make you don't make mistakes and and you don't you make a right uh, right um, decisions all the time so but it comes down to the confidence and and the way you know you play and if you play well a few games in the road and and i think everybody feels better every, every athlete feels better i'm curious who are one or two of the goalkeepers that you admire the most and why well, I have to confess that I didn't have one like a role model goalkeeper. I I always liked to watch everybody, and at the time I was growing up, obviously Peter Schmeichel was one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Edwin Van der Sar, Oliver Kahn, 
and Gigi uh, Buffon when he started playing young, and then uh, you know you take all these examples in, on board, like uh, you know uh, Ajax started playing with uh, Van der Sar, really like with the extra player, you know, from passing from the back and using him all the time. They were under pressure, and he played brilliantly with his feet. Uh, and then you suddenly realize, oh, this is probably the way it's going to go. And, and you try to work more on this. And then you have the presence of Peter Schmeichel and the, the personality and, and the way he fills the goal, you know. And, um, and then you have uh, then you have some, someone like uh, Buffon who, who comes uh, young and, and suddenly you feel it doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. It just depends on the qualities and... And um, and then Oliver Kahn had a fantastic career with Germany and and um, Bayern Munich and, and and as well you see his personality, the determination and the, the precision, concentration, and and you just put all the pieces together and you think okay that that would probably be a, a perfect goalkeeper. So you try to work on everything and you try to make the best and to take the best out of uh, the best and and then uh, you try to make sure that. You you are at least a little bit closer to to them in in the best uh, skills they do and and, and uh, I believe that this is the way to progress all the time. What are some things that people who are not goalkeepers commonly fail to understand about the goalkeeper position? Whether it's about positioning or choosing to come off your line or even how much of the six yard box you're supposed to cover. Well, I think it depends on the. It, it really depends on the situations because uh, nowadays, you know, the players have uh, such an ability, and, and as well, the balls are faster every every year, and everybody tries to see more goals. So, you know, it even becomes more difficult for the goalkeeper to judge sometimes the flight of the ball, or it simply comes too fast. So, you constantly during the game look for the best position possible to, you know, to to cover the as much space you can in the goal, whether it's uh, you know, coming out of the line or just filling the goal. So I think this is the constant battle for the goalkeeper now. And if you are every time in the right position, you give yourself a chance to, you know, to, to catch more crosses, to catch, uh, you know, to catch more balls or to, and to avoid making saves. Sometimes in the, in the right, when you are in the right position, you, you get to the ball fast than, than any player and, and you basically don't have to make a save. If you are in the wrong position, what can happen is that the player is there faster and you have to make saves. So this is what I've been trying to do every game, obviously, to give myself uh, the best position and, and to give myself the, the chance to, you know, to, to take the right decisions all the time. Last year, Manuel Neuer was one of three finalists for the FIFA Ballon d'Or as World Player of the Year. We see him often playing as a, a so-called sweeper-keeper, often coming far out of his goal, uh, occasionally getting in some trouble doing that. Uh, what do you think about that style of goalkeeping? Well, I think it's down to, if, if you compare his style of playing, if you look a few years back, he was not playing as high as he is now, and it's simple because his team was not playing as high line as Bayern Munich does since uh, Guardiola came to the club. And uh, as I said at the start, you need to adapt the way your team is playing. And if, you're, if your defensive line is pressing really high, then, then the space is really big. So you cannot be in your box. You have to be outside of the box to have a chance to, to clear all these balls who come through or, or behind. And obviously, sometimes the space is, becomes really big. So you need to have a, 
you need to you need to make sure that you have a right judgment to go or stay. And uh, you know, not not everybody is perfect. Sometimes you can you can be a bit later. or the pass is really perfect, but uh, I think this is the it goes a lot to the way that the team is playing. And and the, and if you are playing high, you cannot have uh, 60 meters behind. So your goalkeeper needs to be far more active. And 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 he's been you know he had, he adapted to this uh, style of game really well, and, and you can see that he feels comfortable doing that. Switching topics for a second, we talk a lot in U.S. sports these days, especially in the NFL, but also in soccer, about head injuries. Uh, they're taken a lot more seriously now here than maybe they were 10 or 20 years ago. You had, obviously, a serious head injury in 2006, and we've seen players in the Premier League and, and even the World Cup final try to play despite having head injuries and even concussions. Do you think head injuries are taken seriously enough today in European football? I think the, the rules after my um, injury in, uh, at Reading 10 years ago almost. So since then you have obviously much more policy for, you know, for the doctor to let the, the play continue. But I think sometimes, uh, you know, the decision... It's it's hard for the uh, for the doctor to call because the symptoms sometimes are not that clear at the moment. You know they are assessing the player. And me as a player, if you play a if you play a, a big game and you dream all your life to be in the game and and you feel fine, sometimes the decision is very is very tricky for everybody to say yes. Can I continue? I can't. I think in that moment. If the symptoms are clear, obviously the doctor has to have the, the you know, the, the personality to say no, you go off. But um, I understand from that point of view as well, some players really, you know, want to continue. But uh, but I think there is much. People are much more careful now with the, with the decisions. And in the recent in the recent years, we've seen so many good decisions. Uh, which uh, obviously is very pleasant that you can see that people are really taking care of, uh, of the situation and head injury particularly. We have a goalkeeper battle now on the U.S. national team here. Uh, two Premier League goalkeepers, Tim Howard and Brad Guzan. Uh, what do you think of their qualities, and, and is there one you would choose to start if you were the coach? Well, I think it's, it's always hard to, to choose, but... Uh, Obviously, I think you, you as a as a nation, you are lucky to have uh, two great goalkeepers. You know, both playing regularly in the Premier League. You know, both of them. You know, they are very similar. They have a big uh, physical presence and personality. So I think the if you cannot you cannot uh, go wrong with one or another. Obviously, with Colbert, uh, you have uh, you have more experience, and obviously uh, he played World Cups. He played. Uh, he played uh, brilliantly in the, in the last World Cup for the for the U.S. team. So, you know, I think it's a tough decision for the coach. But if you go for one or another, you cannot get it wrong. Uh, off the field, I've read you're pretty good on the drums. If I asked you to do your best song on the drums, what would it be? Oh, well, it's uh, it's probably hard to it's, it's hard to choose. You know, I like <laughs> I like the all sorts of. Uh, music, but uh, I don't know. I really, I don't know really myself if I have to choose one. 
but I, you know, I always, uh, I always like Foo Fighters, and I like uh, Dave Grohl and in and, uh, and Nirvana and and uh, all, you know, more like a rock band. So probably it will be a song, Foo Fighters song, or Nirvana song. Nice, I like it. Uh, lastly, you're still just 33 years old. Goalkeepers can play a long time at a very high level. How long do you want to keep playing? Well, I think that. Your career, you play only once, so as long as I'm fit and I have the level required to play at the Premier League and the, and the highest level, and the club will want me to, to perform and continue, then obviously I will be more than happy to play. But, uh, you know, I still enjoy the challenge of the Premier League every day and and uh, in, the, in the international games the same. So I uh, I hope to continue as long as I can. But uh, how long is going to be... Let's see. Only time will tell. But as long as I'm fit and I have the level, then obviously I would like to continue because I still love the challenge and the adrenaline of every, you know, every training, every game, big games and and uh, Champions League games. And this is uh, this is something which uh, drives me forward always. And and as long as I have that feeling, then I would like to continue. Better check. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I learned a lot here today. Good luck this season. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. NFL Week 3 is history, and the memories are better for some than they are for others. If you're a Bears, a Niners, or a Cowboys fan, for example, now might be a pretty good time to descend into fantasy football land. Well, now with FanDuel, you can play with up to $200 in bonus cash with our code PLANET. Now, by now... You, your friend, those saltwater-chugging Martians, everybody's already heard of FanDuel, but here's what it's about. FanDuel is a leader in one-week fantasy football. They have more winners and more payouts than any other site. They'll pay out over $75 million a week this football season. And look, you know, I love fantasy football, you love fantasy football, but a lot of people miss out on the action because the whole season is just way too much of a time commitment. FanDuel does away with all of that. You can draft a team anytime and drop into tournaments for weekly cash prizes. Entry fees start at just $1, and there's a league for everyone. Over 1 million players have won money playing fantasy sports on FanDuel, and now it's your turn. Go to FanDuel.com and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use the code PLANET, and sign up now. There's a special offer for new users, but only for the first 50 people that use our code PLANET today. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it up to 200 bucks that gets earned as you play. To get that special offer, don't forget to use the word PLANET. FanDuel.com, where every day is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. And while you do, why not get a little bit of an inside edge? Sports Illustrated fantasy expert Michael Beller serves up expert analysis and fantasy advice on not one, but two weekly podcasts. The SI Fantasy Football Podcast on iTunes and SI.com slash podcasts. Welcome back to the Planet Football Podcast. Brian Strauss, you were at the U.S. Open Cup final last night in Chester, Pennsylvania. Kansas City winning on a penalty shootout. How was the game from your perspective on the ground? Um, my kingdom for a final that ends after 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> actually, I actually looked this up real quick. Um, of the 14 most recent finals I've covered, nine went to overtime or penalties. <laughs> and, and many of them required late night drives. Uh, I got home at around four in the morning. I'm not expecting sympathy from anybody. 
Um, certainly not Philadelphia fans. I mean, what a, what a gut-wrenching thing uh, for that club to have to go through. Um, Jim Curtin, you know, you, ne- you never hear a, a bad word about the guy. Uh, he's great to work with. Um, I think he is is dealing with, you know, some uh, some interesting duress and a, and a, and a bit and, and a strange club culture there with that organization and making the best of what he has. Um, the fans have really sort of stuck it out with that team uh, since they, they started in 2010 and went through the upheaval of, of, of Peter Novak and, and and a lot of roster turnover and some really tough defeats. Uh, and to, you know, to blow that lead and then lose on penalties uh, to, to Sporting Kansas City, um, you know, just, you know, we're neutral, of course, but you, you can't help but empathize uh, with a lot of people uh, in that organization uh, for going through that. And, and for Kansas City, there, you know, as, as Jim Curtin had a, had a really good line in the press conference, just said there are a bunch of winners on that team. And, and that's what it is. I mean, just just an, uh, an intangible, unshakable ability for, for, for sporting to, to bend but not break to hang in there, to, to get the play they needed, a gorgeous goal from uh, Christian Nemeth, and then, and then you know, penalties, which you know, sort of almost seemed to fade a complete, like, like you didn't see Sporting uh, bowing out uh, under that kind of pressure, and, and they didn't. They, uh, they made the plays they needed. So, um, you know, Sporting, uh, three major trophies in four years, uh, and they just keep, uh, they keep churning. You know, watching this game on television, I like the fact it was on ESPN2 so the national audience could see it. Uh, and I like that it preempted coverage coming afterward, like World Series of Poker, because that's been done to soccer so many times. Did it preempt poker? Really? It did. It did, which uh, gave me a, a bit of a smile. That's outstanding. Um, but was Philadelphia the better team in this game? I think so. Uh, certainly in the first half. Um, uh, they did a wonderful job of really limiting uh, Benny Failhaber and Dom Dwyer. Uh, you know, Benny didn't have a lot of room to work, especially in the offensive half. Michael LaHood had a wonderful match. Uh, Dwyer didn't see a lot of service at all and really couldn't find the game. Um, so it was going to be up to, you know, Zussi, Nemet, maybe a couple, you know, maybe the, the, if the backs were able to overlap a bit to, to make something happen. Uh, and, and they did. They did on that one gorgeous goal in the second half. But no, Philly, Philly was very good. And, and Tim Milia, the, the goalkeeper on sporting, who's a great story. I mean, this guy was a, was a, was a bench warmer at Chivas USA. He was in the MLS goalkeeper pool last year. And, uh, came to Kansas City for a week or two when they had some injuries and Peter Vermees liked him and then actually uh, shipped him off to Jimmy Nielsen in Oklahoma to have a look at him to sort of get a sense of whether Melia was, was you know, MLS ready. Uh, and and Vermees said last night that we were going to have him spend five days with Jimmy. And then after three, Jimmy called Peter and said that this guy can do it. He's ready. Um, and so uh, a couple big saves for Melia last night, including on a second uh, – uh, a second sort of semi-breakaway from um, Sebastian Latou uh, off a wonderful feed from Nagara. Um, and, and Melia made several saves, and then obviously two in the penalties. So they had they had Melia, they had Nemet, they had guys who were new to the team, who, who, who've adapted quickly to the culture they've built there, and who came up big uh, in a big moment. And it's just, you know, Philly just inches away two years in a row, and they just haven't had the guy who can make the play that makes the difference between winning a game like that and losing it. A couple of things I would say here. Both the goals in this game I thought were fantastic. Gorgeous goals, you know, yep. Uh, we've seen you know, finals that don't produce highlights, memories like that. Uh, finals can be pretty tough affairs sometimes, but just a fantastic ball uh, to, to Latou and finish on the first goal for Philadelphia. And then Nemeth's goal, geez, man. I mean, you could see it kind of developing from – I, from what I've heard, the press box where you were, but also just watching it on television, 
uh, extremely well taken. I don't know if the nickname Broadway Joe has stuck yet to, to Christian Namath or if he even knows who Joe Namath is, but this guy's fun to watch. He's produced some really good highlights over the years. He's telling people he's telling people that that's how you pronounce his name, Namath, which of course in Hungarian, it is nowhere close to that, but he is telling <laughs> people that. So I think he does know who Joe Namath is. Um, he told me after the game, I got the chance to talk with him really quick. Uh, he told me it was the biggest goal of his career and, and, and he was really excited and you know, he said, he, he said, I feel like I've been playing in Kansas City for 10 years. You know, he, they've just made him feel at home and, and made him feel comfortable, but also obviously challenged him in a way that, that that's allowed him to produce. And look, he, he's been a he's been a really underrated uh, newcomer this year. I don't know his exact numbers, but he's got, you know, nine or 10 uh, goals in MLS. Forgive me if I'm wrong on that. Um, and uh, and scored in in four consecutive Open Cup games, uh, you know, including the quarterfinal, the semifinal and the final. So. Um, he's producing. He's been a massive uh, addition for that club. And again, it just shows you that Peter's now got a system in place uh, where he can he can plug guys in. And and when they get Roger Espinosa back from broken foot, which 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 should happen, um, that's going to be a team no one wants to play in the playoffs. They are they are there's something about knockout competition that brings out the best in that team when they're when they're healthy and fit uh, and focused. Now. One thing I've always wondered here is where does Kansas City find these guys? Like Sony Mustavar was playing in Hungary, wasn't he? Or Romania, no, Romania, Romania, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that guy's really good, by the way. He's had a terrific season when healthy. Uh, and Namath, uh, where did they find this guy? Uh, he he was in he was in Holland. I don't know his his exact uh, path to, to sporting. Um, but Peter Vermes has uh, a lot of connections in Hungary, uh, so I assume it happened there. And, and uh, Jordi Cantilla, who scored the, the, the winning penalty kick, uh, came up through Barcelona system at one point, and Peter Vermes has contacts there as well. Um, you know, they, he said they looked at uh, Cantilla the same time they were looking at Yuri Rossell. So um, Peter is well, for, for, for uh, an American you know, player and coach, Peter is very, very well connected in Europe and, and has a really uh, sharp eye for talent and has paid dividends. And I mean, the final last night, besides being hell on deadline, um, was really eventful and fun. And there were, there were like 10 yellow cards and there were pyrotechnics and guys sliding all over the place and the fans were into it. And, you know, it, it, it looked a little bit more maybe like an early season game because guys were just throwing themselves around. But this was not a, a dour, defensive, dull final. I mean, the guys were willing to risk making mistakes and, and, and trying to make plays. And, and it was fun. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, the crowd wasn't enormous, but it was it was loud. Uh, you know, the union had the soft pretzels in the in the media room, which was awesome. Nice work. Uh, they had a really nice match scarf. So, of course, I shelled out for that. Um, and so other than the drive home, it was a good night. Real quick question about flamethrowers behind the goal. Now, which MLS stadiums have that Philly and Seattle that go off and shoot the flames whenever you have a goal? Well, the problem was last night is that whoever was operating uh, the fire cannons for Philadelphia <laughs> didn't understand the offside rule. So, <laughs> so they, they, I mean, they're, they're awesome, right? Who doesn't want to see fire shooting into the sky? But um, yeah, they were, they were a little, they, they, a little quick on the trigger last night. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know who else has them, but they're, they're great. I mean, it adds to the pageantry and silliness of a final and, and obviously the setting there with the bridge and the river is awesome. And, and and you just you just again you you, you feel bad for 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 Curtin and 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 the, the players on the union and the fans of the union who who just can't get over that hump um, and and so you you sort of you, you know you celebrate what Kansas City has accomplished and what Peter Vermes has built I mean player after player talked about the foundation and the culture 
that he's implemented there. Um, and Philly just can't, you know, find that last inch. Uh, and it's, uh, but again, the, the, the pretzels are great. My, here's my plan for the press box. The next time we're in it together, I'm going to get a mini flamethrower. And when I hit send to file <laughs> my story, it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's you put know? that in the SI budget right now. I'd like that. Uh, one last question for you about the U.S. Open Cup. Uh, this is a great tournament. You you love it, especially. I enjoy it. Uh, this was the 102nd year of the tournament. Uh, it got on national television, and yet you still feel like this has more potential. At least I do. And, and do you feel the same way? And is it possible to make this tournament bigger? Do you have any ideas for that? I agree that it has more potential, but is, is that separate and distinct from the potential of the sport in this country in general? Um, Soccer's growing, pro soccer's growing, the Open Cup is growing. They're not growing as fast as people would like, but if you look at where, uh, you know, these clubs and this tournament were five years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, it's clearly growing. And like you said at the beginning, this was on ESPN. Uh, you know, there were close to 15,000 people there on a, on a really crappy Wednesday night uh, in Chester, Pennsylvania. Um, the, the, the players seem to really care about it. Coaches are starting to, you know, I mean... Peter Vermes was starting putting his starters on the field against uh, St. Louis FC in their first game. It's a USL expansion team, and he's he's got you know Fail Haber and Zusi and guys like that out on the field. Um, so you know it's a trophy, it's a medal, it's an honor, it's a it's a spot in the Concacaf Champions League. Uh, there's a little bit of money involved, maybe more. Um, so it is growing, and 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 I think it'll continue to get bigger. And you know I don't, what would make it bigger? Um, I don't know more prize money, maybe maybe like racketology. And that's what we, we need, Open Cup Racketology. And, and then I think we're set. I would like to see U.S. soccer make the prize money bigger. Right now it's $250,000 for the winning team. But U.S. soccer is pretty flush these days, if, uh, if folks haven't noticed. Uh, and scheduling friendlies that are sort of meaningless, like against Costa Rica on October 13th, to bring in the cash. They're paying Jurgen Klinsmann more than $3 million a year these days. So I would love to see this tournament get maybe up to – you know, why not a million dollars, you know? Um, not that I'm certain this will happen or that that's the be-all, end-all for making it bigger, but, um, you know, I like the fact that uh, that ESPN decided to broadcast this game. I'd love to see maybe the semifinals as well on, on national television, but um, uh, we'll see what happens over time. Switching gears here, I, I want to bring up a couple other topics to uh, get our takes on. Uh, one of them being... Why are English teams doing so poorly in Champions League this year? And just looking at the facts right now, we've seen uh, Arsenal lose its first two games uh, against a bad Dinamo Zagreb team and at home this week to Olympiacos. We've seen Chelsea lose at Porto this week. We've seen Man City lose at home to Juventus uh, and be outplayed in winning at Gladbach yesterday. Uh, we've seen Man United lose to PSV. Uh, before winning this week. So it's it's a good question at this point. The English Premier League is the the biggest uh, European league in the United States as far as the attention it gets. Um, you know, we follow all the storylines, and yet uh, nowhere near winning last year or even being in contention to win. But what's your sense of, of things and, and why English teams are struggling so much in Champions League? I guess first I first I, I mean you, you mentioned a couple of the defeats. I don't know if losing at Porto or losing to Juventus is is reason to rip rip your hair out. I mean those are those are former European champions, former world champions. I mean that's 
those are big clubs too. Um, this may surprise people, but there are allowed to be big clubs outside of England. Um, I, I, other than Arsenal, I don't know if England is doing that poorly this season. We're only two games into the group stage. Uh, Chelsea's a, a point out of second after two games. Man City's tied for second. Uh, everyone in United's group is 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 one and one. So I mean, it's a it's tight, and maybe it's tighter than than the Anglophiles would like it to be. But it's you know the the ship isn't sinking just yet. Um, you know, I I do think there's something to be said though for the fact that the Premier League is 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 very competitive, and 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 certainly more so than I think a lot of the other uh, big European leagues where you see greater spread between the top teams and the bottom teams. And so, you know, a lot of, look, a lot of the, the, the league's profile here is marketing, but, but I also think that a game against the 15th best team in England, uh, may be a bit tougher uh, than a game against the 15th best team in, in, in Italy, France, or, 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 uh, or Spain. So, um, you know, are, are, are these tactically savvy, uh, super clubs, uh, from from Italy, Germany, and Spain coming into these games a bit more rested uh, against an English team that played a, a robust Stoke City on the weekend. Yeah, there, there, there's probably something to that. But I also don't think this stuff cyclical. In, in England was was dominating the Champions League only three or four years ago, and and like I said, right now at, at this rate, it looks very easily like three of the four teams could advance out of the group. Another thing I'd point out is between 2006 and 2009, English teams really, really did well uh, going deep into Champions League and winning. ancient history. In winning Champions League. But I I do find it interesting that uh, I've heard a lot of people in England say, well, wait until next season when the huge television money for the Premier League kicks in and we'll come back to just destroying everyone in Champions League. And I don't know if I totally buy that. I've actually talked to people on the continent who think that, yes, that will cause English teams to, to poach players from, Ang- or from uh, the continent that they maybe wouldn't have in the past, especially mid-level Premier League teams and even lower-level Premier League teams. I had one guy from Italy tell me that the bottom five teams in the Premier League would be as wealthy or wealthier than the top five teams in Italy, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But I don't know if that necessarily means that English teams will do better in Champions League starting next season. In fact, I think it might make the Premier League even more important to teams at the expense of paying attention to Champions League. USA-Mexico is coming up October 10th, a week from Saturday. You and I are going to be out in LA next week, and we will be talking about this a lot, writing about this a lot. This is a huge game. Uh, at least in terms of fan excitement. You can have a debate, I guess, over uh, how how big a game this is in the history of USA-Mexico. Uh, but for this week, I just wanted to focus on one very specific thing, and that is the question, who are the starting two center backs going to be for the U.S. against Mexico? Because we already know that Brad Guzan is starting because Jurgen Klinsmann said so. We already know that the two fullbacks he wants are Demarcus Beasley and Fabian Johnson. Uh, but we don't know anything about who the center backs are going to be. And there's a lot of guys who could start in this very important position. Omar Gonzalez, Jeff Cameron, Matt Beesler, Ventura Alvarado, John Brooks, Michael Orozco, Tim Ream, even Brad Evans, uh, our crack producer, uh, Alex Admos even threw Jonathan Spector into the mix. So why not? Um, Brian, who do you think the two starters should be and who will they be? Your, I don't know. Your question is already keeping me up at nights because I'm a loser. Um, you know, Jurgen loves Alvarado and Brooks, and Alvarado's been on the bench 
at Club America, and Brooks is, is has not been healthy uh, in Berlin. So, I mean, maybe he can he can work his magic and get them, you know, stitched up and 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 wheel them out there to play against Mexico. Uh, I don't know if that's the best idea. Um, you know, you you look back. I've, I've written this and said this several times. And I'll probably be saying it for another week and a half. But for me, you got to go with the guys who've been successful against Mexico already. That's Omar Gonzalez, played multiple games against Mexico recently, has done well. Um, and, and then I think you got to choose between Beasler and Cameron. Uh, the interesting thing is that Beasler and Cameron have played together several times, but I, I don't think that Cameron and Gonzalez have played together. Um, so I think among those three, I, I, I think you, you, you figure out a pairing. Guys who have who have experience against Mexico, guys who are playing regularly or in decent form, uh, and are not going to be uh, awed or bewildered by the occasion. You, you, you stop experimenting for ninety minutes and you go with what's worked before. I, I'm with you. I think two of those three guys uh, should be the ones to start. I have a slightly different opinion on Gonzalez versus uh, Beesler. If Beesler's healthy, um, I think he's in a good run of form. These days, he was good. He was good last night. You know, and, and you know, he, I've seen him up close a couple of times uh, at games recently. Seen him on television several times. Uh, I think he's a guy to start with Jeff Cameron, and, and, and Jeff Cameron is getting regular time at the center back position in the Premier League. Um, I don't know if Omar Gonzalez's form that I've seen in MLS lately has been as good. Uh, I think he can handle it. Uh, and he does that, have that history against Mexico. But if I had to pick two, I would I would pick Beesler and Cameron for this game. Uh, John Brooks hasn't played at all since uh, the Peru game. So, you know, not even at club level. So that seems like a tough order for him. Alvarado, I just don't think, is ready for this game. Um, now, who will Jurgen pick to play? I, I think those guys are certainly in the mix. Uh, I think Michael Orozco is in the mix. Um, uh, I thought... The, the back line's performance against Brazil was bad, uh, but what got me even more was how guys appeared to sort of give up uh, at certain times in the second half. And I don't think that would happen. I don't think we'd see guys with that kind of body language if it's Beesler and Cameron against Mexico. So um, we'll see how it shakes out. I think it's a hugely important decision that Klinsman has to make. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, U.S. Olympic qualifying on the men's side starts this week. Uh, first in Kansas City, um, the U.S. under-23 team uh, has some guys that you know we recognize, uh, probably headed by Jordan Morris, uh, who scored against Mexico earlier this year for the senior team, um, Gideon Zellalem, uh, also with this team. Uh, and people talk about how important it is to qualify for the Olympics. Jurgen Klinsmann certainly says this a lot. The U.S. did not qualify four years ago, as a lot of people remember, uh, also didn't qualify for 04. So two out of the last three Olympics, the U.S. men have not qualified for the big tournament. How important are the Olympics, Brian? Uh, first, a, a plug for Levi Bird, uh, our colleague, who's going to be uh, covering that tournament for us while you and I are uh, uh, having fun with Jurgen and the boys in Los Angeles. Um, how important is it? Uh, you know, Germany's, I uh, looked this up, Germany's missed the past six Olympics. Uh, France has missed the past four. Uh, the Dutch have qualified once since 1952. Um, Spain missed the two Olympics before they wound up winning the World Cup. So these are, these are established soccer powers. 
uh, that, that, that don't make the Olympics and, and still do okay at the senior level. Um, now, obviously, they're established soccer powers, which the U.S. is not. I, I, think, it's, I think it's kind of important. I, I, I think it's certainly a great experience for, for the men who get to go uh, and, 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 and play in a tournament where there, there's, you know, bright lights and people watching and, and you're playing against, uh, different teams from different places that, that, that deal with, you know, that give you different challenges and play with different styles. Um, so, so I think there's a potential positive for the guys that have that experience. Certainly when you talk to guys who play in the Olympics, they rave about it. They, they think it helped at the same time, not qualifying. I don't think it is a, it, it, it's not a massive negative. I don't, I don't think it hurts the growth of the sport in this country necessarily. Uh, it would be disappointing, uh, but I don't, think it, I don't think soccer takes a step back in America if, if the U23s don't go to Brazil. You know, I think also, too, there's a couple of things going on. You point out the U.S. is different from established soccer countries, and I agree with that. I also think the Olympics matter even more here, uh, at least in some ways, uh, than they do in some other countries. Not that the Olympics don't matter globally, but... Um, I think there's something about being an Olympian uh, that I've talked to soccer players who've been a part of the Olympics uh, and they said they really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I look at uh, the experiences that happened like in the 2000 Olympics. I remember covering in Australia when the U.S. got to the semifinals and got to the bronze medal game, and lost that game. Um, you know, that was Landon Donovan, guys like Brad Friedel, John O'Brien, um, you know, several guys who made a contribution to the 2002 World Cup uh, run just two years later. And, you know, I almost compare it to the Confederations Cup run the U.S. had in 09, where simply getting the U.S. public on board for a U.S. men's run is, that's helpful to the sport. Uh, and the women's run as well, because the women always have great runs in, in the Olympics, but that's with their full team. Um, but I, I think there's something to be said for just being in the moment of a global tournament uh, with the U.S. And, and that being good for soccer. Um, so I'm going to the Olympics no matter what next year in Brazil. I would love to be able to cover the men's team in addition to the women's team, uh, which should qualify fairly easily next February. But uh, good stuff, Brian. Uh, as always, thanks for, for joining us after a short night's sleep. We'll take a break right now. All right, before we go on with the show, I want to tell you guys about the best new way to find an amazing deal on football tickets or football tickets. It's a SeatGeek app. When you use our code PLANET, you'll get $20 off your first purchase. And what that means, if you get a ticket that is $20 or less, you're going for free, and SeatGeek is paying for it. The SeatGeek app takes less than a minute to download, and it's free on iPhone and Android. SeatGeek does a ton of things that other places just can't offer. One of them is aggregating from big ticket sites. So instead of just searching one place or the other, you're getting all the options from multiple sellers. Hundreds of sellers, actually. It's a one-stop shop for sports and concert tickets. When you shop on SeatGeek, you're seeing virtually every ticket option available for that game all on one page. So there's really no need to go anywhere else. They also have this really cool feature called Deal Score. It ranks every ticket on the market with a 1 to 100 value score and plots the best deals on a color-coded interactive map of the venue. At a glance, you'll be able to see which tickets are the best deal. Also, SeatGeek's mobile app makes the ticket buying process seamless, easy, and safe. You store your credit card once, and once you find a ticket you want to buy, it's done within a few quick taps. To redeem your promo code and save $20 on tickets, download the free SeatGeek app today, enter the promo code PLANET in the app, SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek purchase. So, 
For example, if you buy a $15 ticket on SeatGeek and use our code PLANET, they still send you a check for $20. So they're literally paying you to go to the game. You can earn $5 by going to a game, or $10 if you get a $10 ticket. You see how this works. For the best MLS European football and concert deals, use the SeatGeek app and enter our code PLANET to save $20. Welcome back to the show. We'd like to close today with a nice discussion from SI's Leave You Bird. The NWSL final is tonight. We're recording this on Thursday, October 1st. And Laura Harvey, the head coach of the Seattle Reign, one of the teams in the final against Kansas City, sat down with Leave You for a wide-ranging discussion. Today on Sports Illustrated's Planet Football Podcast, uh, we're glad to be joined by Laura Harvey, head coach of Seattle Rain FC. Um, Laura, thanks for taking the time to join us. No problem. Um, I guess the, the first question is uh, for me has to be about building this team from, from what was uh, a, a league that didn't exist, teams that didn't literally just didn't exist, and building it into... Uh, a franchise that has now made the, the NWSL final twice in a row and, and has been one of the more successful teams in the league the last couple of years. So, especially after that first season that was kind of rocky, didn't really work out in terms of injuries and allocation of national team players and stuff like that. Uh, how, how has this process been for you and how, I guess, how stressful has it been, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's different building it from scratch and having literally nothing to start with. Um, I think back home, any club really has some type of history, whether it be they've, you know, a team like Arsenal that have been around for so long, or um, a team that are just a, a group of players who are interested in making a team. And there's always something that brings it together. And and here there was literally nothing. You know, you were given some players, and and those players for us that year had different reasons why they couldn't play for us, and. It was it was a challenge for sure, but I think with something that's so challenging, when you can get things moving in the right direction, then it becomes a lot more rewarding too. Um, and I think that's what this um, this job so far has been for me is every challenge we've tried to come up against and and be successful through has been the most rewarding as well. So yeah, I think it's without doubt been um, a really tough three years so far. But um, we're constantly evolving, it's constantly changing, and that's what happens when things are new. Um, but without doubt, it's, it's one of the most rewarding challenges I've ever done. You, you gave a great presentation in January at the NSCAA conference about, about possession soccer. And you know, to me, possession is kind of a buzzword everybody likes to throw around these days. How do you like to play? Oh, we like to keep the ball. And so I, in my mind, possession as a philosophy has become a little bit overrated whereas using possession as kind of a tool like a means to an end mm-hmm. is uh, not spoken about quite as as much um, but how do you how do you view kind of possession within your coaching philosophy and, and I guess it, it's nice to look at but if there's no end product uh, it doesn't really amount to much was that something you'd agree with yeah I think possession is a buzzword I think it's something that is used a lot and I think you know the Barcelona-esque type thing um, has been overshadowed a little bit now by the Pep Guardiola buy-in way where they want to make it really hard for a team to play through or around them and then when they win it back they punish them. Um, I think 
you know, the Mourinho's of the world are similar. They don't necessarily talk loads about what they do when they have it, but it's what they try and do to stop other teams. And then when they get it, they have the players on the field to go and hurt you. So um, I think that's something that we've looked at of, you don't want to play games and win 7-6. You want to try and win games to zero. And to be able to do that, you've got to be able to defend. Mm-hmm. One thing that we've seen now with you know with you coming over and also Paul Riley when he was coaching uh, in Portland, although he was in the U.S. before, and obviously Matt Beard coming over to coach the Boston Breakers, we're seeing kind of a, I guess, more of a British influence in, in the NWSL. Yeah. Um, it, how, is this something that, I don't know, when you go home, do you talk to your colleagues about this? Do they ask you, oh, what's it like coaching in the U.S.? Is this something that uh, that they also have on, on their wish list, perhaps? Yeah, I think from, from for people who've been involved in the women's game um, for a long time, everyone's always looked at the U.S. as sort of the pinnacle. You know, they're often number one in the world, you know, world champions again for whatever it is, the third time, um, always in and around it in terms of Olympic gold. So they're the, they're the country that you look at to go, okay, well, what are they doing that's good? What are they doing that's right? How are they producing all these teams and players? And from a coaching standpoint, I would think a lot of British coaches who have either coached in the female game have either done some form of coaching in the US or looked at it because it's the... It's the place that's got the biggest opportunity for coaches in the women's game. There's more jobs over here than any other place, whether it be through high school, college, club, um, the pro level now, that you can get the recognition that maybe you couldn't get in elsewhere. Um, and I think like for myself and, and maybe for Matt, when you've gone at club level and achieved stuff away from the US, you then look at, well, what could the next challenge be at club level? And I think it's either you go abroad within Europe or you come to the US. And I think um, the US is something that everyone would see as a huge opportunity and a huge challenge. Um, So it doesn't surprise me that you see that a lot. Um, And I think not just within head coaches, I think if you look around the league, around colleges around youth clubs there's a lot of British coaches that coach over here and it's not necessarily because they know better than an American coach I just think they've they've come over for that reason because they want that opportunity to be able to work over here and see what it's like and challenge themselves. Mm-hmm. Speaking of coaching opportunity it, it really seems one of the the stats that get or facts that get thrown around a lot is the fact that you're still the only female coach in the league and uh you know, I was recently at the um, ECNL, which is the, for those who don't know, is the uh, the top girls league in the country. Uh, I was at the ECNL finals in Redmond, and I was struck by how few female coaches there were there as well. Um, is this something that, do you think there's enough opportunity for female coaches as well? Is this something that, uh, I guess, the, the world in general could do better, or the U.S. specifically could do better to, to incentivize? Um. I get asked this question quite a lot and I'm, I'm a true believer that it should be the right person for the right job um, and a lot of good coaches, male or female, have given so much to the women's game that they should be given the opportunities that arise from all that hard work. I think there's a generation of players that are coming out of the game now that have been coached a lot throughout their career 
who might see coaching as a platform to build on from their playing career. And I think they're the ones that we should encourage and give huge opportunity to. I think there's a lot of opportunity in this country for female coaches, but they've got to recognise what the sport is and go, okay, well, what's it going to take for me to commit to get where I want to be? Um, And I just think over here there's such a huge opportunity for any coach because there's so many people play the game. There's so many females that play the game, young girls who play the game, that there will be opportunity somewhere. It's just maybe going through the stepping stones of what that takes. And, you know, I know I've been extremely lucky with the opportunities that I've had throughout my career, but I still remember the days of coaching the U12s and going to primary schools and high schools. And, and I ha- you know, that's part of what you have to go through to decide what, what type of coach you want to be. Um, and I think sometimes within the game, because there's loads of opportunity at a higher level, sometimes females go into that and it's just not what they want to do. So then they come away from it rather than they go back to it. So I do think there's huge opportunity. Um, I don't think that uh, males should be discouraged from working in the women's game because I think that a lot of males can give a huge amount to the game. And we can learn from that. Um, But I would love to see as many females as possible really take the opportunities and go with it. I think, you know, within the college system as well, there's been a lot of success stories through female coaches. And, you know, Jill Ellis is probably a great example of that, who worked at UCLA for such a long time and then went into US soccer and helped develop the youth system. And then she's got the biggest job in the women's game, you know. So the, the pathway is there. Um, I think it's just we've just got to keep working hard at it and um, without doubt I think there's a lot of female coaches out there and a lot of female players who will end up being fantastic coaches mm-hmm. and last question uh, you bring up Jill Ellis and the US national team and I've seen this trend of uh, you know other countries really starting to catch up to the US in, in the women's game in terms of you know Spain and the Netherlands just qualified for the, their first World Cups and, and you're looking at countries that traditionally are powerhouses on the men's side, um, really bringing the same kind of philosophy, the same style of play to the women's game. And a lot of times uh, the U.S. gets accused of being too physical-based and being bigger, faster, stronger, but maybe not necessarily as technical or, or more importantly, you know, as, as smart, as, have a, as high of a soccer IQ as some of the players um, elsewhere. Do you see other countries catching up to the U.S.? How, how do you see kind of, I guess, the balance of the women's game changing in the next few years? Well, I think everybody's trying to catch up with the US. That's what everybody's been trying to do for the last 20 years, is catch the US. So um, there will be times where that gap closes, and there'll be times where that gap goes huge again. Um, And I think the way that the US performed throughout the World Cup just shows that I don't necessarily think it was some of their best performances that I've seen them play, but it was the most... Um, demanding probably of the players and they stepped up to it you know they came through tough a tough group um, that everybody probably looked at and went you know they'll have done well to get through that and then you know when it really mattered that group of players and and the staff just were unstoppable in my opinion I watched the Germany game and just thought there's no way they're losing that and then I was lucky enough to be at the final and you know 
you can just see it in their faces within the first two minutes, getting that first goal, game over. They, you just knew they were not going to let anybody catch them. And that's why the US have always kept the gap, because they have that mentality. So it's not something that they should shy away from. It's something that they should be proud of, to have that mentality. And it's down to the rest of the world to keep trying to catch them up. Um, and obviously, I'm sure from Jill's perspective and the players' perspective, it's how can they keep that gap growing? Because there is definitely a gap, for sure. And there should be. There's more girls play this sport in this country than any other. So they should be up and around the world's number one. Um, and obviously, getting the World Cup this year, you'd want to see in four years' time, can they keep that development going? So... I just think it's fantastic that the US keeps striding ahead of everybody because it gives everybody something to try and catch. We don't want the talent just to plateau off. We want to keep the game, pushing the game forward. And I think US soccer, the players, um, the, even the NWSL is really pushing the game onto another level, I believe. Great. Well, that's all, all the questions I have. Thank you very much again for joining us. No problem. Many thanks to Leview Bird and to Laura Harvey for that. You can read all of Leview's coverage of the NWSL final over at Planet Football. That'll do it for us until next week. For Brian Strauss, Alex Abnos, and Leview Bird, I'm Grant Wall. See you all next week. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.